Let's open our Bibles this evening to Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew chapter number 12. I appreciate the Lord meeting with us this morning. Amen. What a blessing that was. His presence is sweet, isn't it? I'll tell you, I, I, I never want to get over His presence. And I, want, I, never, I never want to get to the place I feel like I don't need it. And uh, what a blessing that was. Matthew chapter number 12. Uh, we began preaching in this chapter last Sunday night in the earlier uh, stages, the earlier verses in this chapter. Uh, but I want us to jump ahead a little bit down to verse number 38. Matthew chapter number 12, verse number 38. And let's uh, read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 says, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of, uh, in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater then Jonas is here. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this, another privileged opportunity. Help us tonight in the preaching of thy word. Uh, may you hide us behind your cross. May you and you alone be seen uh, in the preaching of thy word. And I pray, Lord, that each and every heart would be touched in a way that would draw us closer unto thee. Lord, you know what our heart's needs are uh, better than even we ourselves know our hearts. And Lord, we trust you and we commit to you uh, the uh, maintenance of our heart and of our walk with you, uh, that, Lord, if there's anything in our lives that are astray, that you'd use the preaching tonight uh, to address it, to point it out, help us to uh, submit and obey and repent, and get it correct, get it right before you. We'll be sure to thank you. Uh, Lord, we ask all these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Last Sunday night, we began a series of messages and uh, my intention is for it only to be last Sunday night and tonight, and maybe if the Lord wills it next Sunday night. Uh, but following a theme and following a phrase that is found here in Matthew chapter number 12, uh, the first time that we see it uh, is in the beginning portions of uh, this chapter. In verse number 6, the Lord Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and He is rebuking them uh, for their uh, spirit. And He says in verse number 6, I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. And we preached last Sunday night on how the Lord Jesus was greater in worship than the Old Testament sanctuary was. I got news for you. Listen, the New Testament worship is not one iota lesser or inferior or degraded relative to the worship that they experienced in the Old Testament. In fact, I would say this to you, that we enjoy worship in a far more intimate and more real and more powerful sense today uh, than they ever experienced as they worshipped in the temple. The things that they were involved in and, and were engaged in were but shadows of things to come. Uh, they were uh, but images of things to come. But you and I get to live and experience the reality of it. Amen. And we have something far greater. And I, I love to study the Old Testament. I love to study typology. If you've been around here any bit of time, you know that. Uh, but I wouldn't for one moment want to go back to that. I think we've got something greater today in Christ than what they had then. 
And then next Sunday night, if the Lord will allow us, I want us to look at the third occasion uh, that's found. And it's found actually in the very the verse right after we stopped our reading tonight, uh, when in verse 42, the Lord says that a greater than Solomon is here. And uh, next Sunday night, if the Lord uh, allows it, we're going to preach about how the Lord Jesus was greater in wonder than Solomon. That's the context there. The Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon because she had heard all about him and that he was wonderful and that he was wondrous to behold. She wanted to see how great he was. And uh, Jesus says, hey, there's a greater than Solomon even here. Uh, the riches we have in Jesus Christ are vastly superior to anything that Solomon ever had. But tonight, if the Lord will allow us to, I want to take just a few moments of your time and preach on the text that we've read, and in particular, the phrase at the end of verse number 41. The Lord Jesus uh, is answering a request from the scribes and Pharisees. They've asked in verse 38, Master, we would see a sign from thee. In other words, uh, give us proof. Give us proof that you are who you say you are. Uh, is there anyone, Jesus, that can bear testimony that, that uh, other than yourself that, that you are who you say you are? Is there anything you can do to prove to us that you are God from heaven and, and that you are the Messiah and that you are sin? And he replies that there is only and singularly one sign that would be given to that generation. He rebukes them. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation that seeketh after a sign. And then he says, there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now this, uh, and it's apparent, I think, to anybody that is honest in the reading of Scripture, that where it says Jonas here, it is referring to the Old Testament uh, character that we know of as Jonah. And uh, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you know of anybody else that was swallowed for three days, three nights by a whale, come show me it in the Bible. Amen. That's who, that's who he's talking about. And he says in verse 40, as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, I believe that's correct, by the way. I believe that's correct, the whale's belly. Uh, you say, well, Jonas said it was a big fish. Well, I don't know what you think a whale is. And what I mean to say is that the inerrancy of the Word of God predates any, any taxological or taxonomical distinctions that, that science has come in uh, years, a decade, generations, uh, millennia afterwards and tried to impose upon uh, the Word of God. You say, well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, some people take issue with that. They say, well, uh, a whale is not a fish. A whale is a mammal. Well, who called it a mammal and who called it a fish? Uh, the evolutionists call it a mammal. That's fine. I, I won't argue necessarily with that distinction, but don't tell me God's wrong. God called it a fish long before uh, science ever called it a mammal. Amen. So I don't think that's any difficulty or error in, in the King James Bible. And by the way, those kinds of quote-unquote errors, that's the kind most of the scholars are talking about. It's stuff that anybody with, with half a lick of common sense would, would be able to see right through. I believe that's correct when it says a whale's But I don't just believe it's grammatically correct. I believe it's historically correct. I believe what God said happened is precisely what happened. I believe Jonah was swallowed. I believe his, his body was kept in that whale's belly for three days, three nights. And I think he, that whale uh, spit him right back up on dry land, uh, that God resurrected his body, and that uh, he walked into Nineveh and preached the message of God. Uh, you say, how can you believe that? Well, I believe God created all things. See, and once you believe, once you accept that first verse in the Bible, you ought to have no problem with anything else. Man, if God could create the heavens and the earth, what could he not do? And so I, I have no, no challenge with that, no struggle with that. But the Lord Jesus points to that event. And he says, as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man 
be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says the men of Nineveh, and this really is the salient point. This is where the preaching takes place. Uh, before that, he's given them prophecy. Now he's given them uh, practicality. Uh, before he's stating a fact, but now he's charging them to a place of responsibility. And he says the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Those Assyrians, those godless pagans, those Gentile dogs, oh yes, they'll stand and condemn that generation of Israel. Why? Because they repented of the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Say, preacher, what does the Lord Jesus mean when he says a greater than Jonas? Well, I wrote it down this way, and this is the title of my message. I believe that Jesus is a gra- is greater in witness than the servant that he speaks about here in Matthew chapter number 12, than Jonah. The, the, the substance, the spirit, the intent, the theme for which the Lord Jesus is giving Jonah as an example and drawing this connection between Jonah and himself as he said, you want to see a sign, you want to witness from heaven that I am who I say that I am. But he says the only thing you're going to get is the same kind of witness and the same kind of sign that Nineveh got uh, whenever the man of God, the prophet of God, was spit up from the depths of death and walked amongst them and bore testimony and witness to the power of God. And he said, point in fact, you have a greater witness in me than what the Ninevites had in Jonah. They repented at that lesser witness And I'm calling you to repent of this greater witness. Can I make a point here before I get into the preaching? You'll oftentimes hear people say things like, I can't believe. No, you won't believe. You say, well, I just, I just, I preach, I just, I can't believe. No, that's not true. That's not true. Hey, God's given to every man the measure of faith. You can believe. The problem is you won't believe. Hey, listen, uh, uh, I remember a man that Jesus came to and and the question that Jesus asked the man was, wilt thou be made whole? He didn't ask him, can you be made whole? Because that wasn't that man's jurisdiction. That was Jesus' job to heal him. The question was not, could Jesus heal him? The question was not, could the man heal himself? The question was, would the man, will he, was he willing? You hear people say all the time, well, preacher, I just can't believe. No, that's not true. You can believe. It's a question of whether you will believe. Because the fact of the matter is, uh, you remember in the... I'm, I, here I had a message and everything. You remember in Luke chapter number 16, a, a rich man lift up his eyes in hell. And he cried out and he says, Oh, send Lazarus to dip his finger in cool water and touch the tip of my tongue. Abraham said, You know I can't do that. There's a great goal fix between us and the... I can't get to you, you can't get to me. In other words, where we're at is where we're at. And then here's what the rich man said. He said, well, send Lazarus back. Send Lazarus back and let him preach to my brothers because i got five brothers and they're headed this same hell. And Abraham answered and said, they have the law and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, if they'll not hear the law and the prophets, they wouldn't believe even though a man rose from the dead and preached to them. I'm saying this, in the Word of God, the very the very epitome, the very acme, the very epic of, of heavenly witness was the resurrection. And if a man won't believe in light of the resurrection, he just chooses not to believe. Uh, God has equipped 
the human heart and mind with all the testimony, with all the witness that he needs to know that God is real, that he sits in heaven, that he loves those on earth, that he has a plan for their life, that he's powerful to save them. All that can be seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when men say to me, preacher, I just can't believe that's not true. They may, they may say that. They may have convinced themselves that. They may go to their grave into a devil's hell telling others that. But it is simply not true. They can believe. They won't believe. They won't believe. And so the Lord Jesus looks at these men and says, the generation of men that saw Jonah walk up on that seashore, they're going to stand up in judgment with this generation. And they're going to condemn it because they repented and they had a lesser witness than what you have. I wonder what, in what way, how the Lord Jesus was a greater witness than Jonah. And that really is what I want to preach on tonight. And I want to give you three things about the Lord Jesus that I believe makes Him a greater witness. And you say, well, preacher, what does this have to do with us? Because we're living in a, in a church age. We're living in a dispensation of grace wherein it's our responsibility to be ambassadors for Christ, to reach men with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're living in a day where it's incumbent upon us in faith to go into a lost and dying world and reach them with the gospel. And we're equipped with this witness, with this testimony of the risen Savior, of the risen Lord. And we need to know just how great a witness it is. And we need to know the substance and spirit of the message that we are to take before them. Now, in order to do this, we're going to have to go back into the Old Testament. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. To the book of Jonah. If you don't know where that's at, just open the whale's mouth and you'll find it. Book of Jonah. The Old Testament. And while you find your place there, I want to read to you a passage out of Second Kings. There are really only two places that the Bible talks historically about uh, Jonah. One, of course, is in the little four-chapter book of Jonah. And we'll spend some time there tonight looking at the testimony of Scripture. But there's only one other place that Jonah is mentioned. And it's in Second Kings, chapter number 14. It says in verse 23 of that chapter, In the fifth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned forty and one years. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. And you say, well, preacher, why would you read that? Well, uh, for a couple reasons. One, I, I want you to note that Jonah was a historical figure. He is not a fairy tale. He is not a mother goose tale. He is not a, a, an allegorical uh, symbol. He is not an avatar of some human object lesson. Jonah was a person. He was an individual. And we know that because a entirely separate historical record. Now, I understand it's the Word of God. I understand the same God that wrote the book of Jonah is the same God that wrote the book of Second Kings. Uh, but inasmuch as they were pinned down in separate places, separate times, separate generations by separate men, they bear for us and, and they prove to us and they provide for us a separate historical record of the person of Jonah. He was a historical individual. He was a real man that lived, that walked, that ministered. Let me say not only was he a real man, he was a successful prophet of God. It's a sad thing that all we know about Jonah is his failure. All we know is his bad spirit. Now, listen, I, it's the will of God that that be all we know. And, and no doubt, Jonah's 
uh, behavior and conduct in the book of Jonah is a lot of the reason for that. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing what God chose to share with us, but I'm just saying it is a tragedy of the, of the life and testimony and biography of Jonah that evidently this was a man that had an illustrious career as a prophet of God. The Bible says that uh, those coasts of Israel were, were built according to the word of Jonah. Uh, he was prophesying and God was honoring it. Uh, he stood up straight under a wicked king, no doubt experienced persecution and ostracization and threats, but was willing to do that and was willing to stand for God. But that's not what we know him for. We know him for his disobedience. Can I just say this in passing? I don't know why I asked that, because I'm going to do it anyway. Let let me just say in passing, what a sad testimony. It's a reminder that a testimony takes a lot more work to build than it does to break. It takes a lot more work to build a testimony up than it does to shatter it. And sad truth is, most oftentimes, people will more readily remember us for our failures than they will for our faithfulness. So what do I do with that, preacher? Well, you ought to guard your testimony. You ought to guard your testimony. So he is a historical figure in the Word of God. And most of what we know about Jonah's life is summarized in that little book of Jonah. You could follow that book, and and it basically comprises uh, and and is compiled of four chapters that really neatly divide themselves into into four areas. I remember one time years ago, I I preached a series of messages on Jonah. Uh, In chapter number one, he's on the Lamb. Amen. He's running from God and from the presence of God and from the will of God. And uh, in chapter number 2, we see him in the whale. Uh, God has caught him. God has cornered him. God has arrested his attention. And now Jonah's all of a sudden uh, listening. And in uh, chapter number 3, uh, we see him in the will of God, in the city of Nineveh, obeying God, being a servant of God, uh, but sadly doesn't do it with a good spirit or a right spirit. He does it with a wrong spirit. And when we come to chapter 4, we find him under the worm. Uh, he's angry at God and that gourd that grows above his head that a worm destroys. He cares more about that gourd than he cares about those... Uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people there in the city of Nineveh. And so when you walk through those chapters, you find that they neatly catalog this sad tale of Jonah. And I want us tonight to look at a few of these occasions. And you've got your Bible open, I trust, there in in Jonah chapter number 1. But let me begin by saying this. I believe that the Lord Jesus was a greater witness in that He had a greater spirit than Jonah. You know, every man, uh, man's iniquity and man's disobedience and man's rebellion, it may manifest itself outwardly, but as the preacher said yesterday in preaching the Word of God, it always begins in the heart. Uh, every sin that we commit, it doesn't start from without us, it starts from within us. And before we've ever run from God with our feet, we have first run from God with our will and our attitude and our heart and our spirit and our mind. And Jonah's story begins, tragically, with him running from God. Notice in verse number 1 of chapter 1, the Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Uh, Some of the saddest words in the word of God, the very next verse says, But Jonah rose up to flee. You know, the next uh, like 40-some verses or whatever, or 30-some verses, they didn't even have to be in your Bible. Uh, They were only there because uh, the man of God was disobedient. Uh, God, if He had written it His way, it would have jumped from chapter uh, number 1, verse number 2, all the way over to chapter number 3 and uh, verse number 1. Jonah would have never wound up in the whale's belly. But sadly, Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. 
from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, the first time we're introduced to Jonah here, he is being disobedient to the Lord. And yet this is the man that the Lord Jesus points to and he says, that's the best witness they had in the day that they lived in. I'd propose to you tonight that the Lord Jesus had a far better spirit, far better attitude, far better manner and disposition than Jonah ever had, and he exhibited it in his earthly life. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, notice something about Jonah's submission. And he does finally submit to God. But sadly, Jonah's submission was was uh, threefold in its in its uh, in its problems. One, let me say that Jonah's submission was discriminatory. Uh, this is the reason I read that passage at the beginning about Jonah uh, from Second Kings uh, chapter number fourteen. Jonah was not a failure of a man by and large. He had spent many years prophesying in the land of Israel and doing so faithfully and obeying the Lord and seeing great success and great moves of God in that endeavor. But then when God speaks to Jonah and says, Jonah, now I want you to go to the Assyrians, go to this Gentile nation, go to these Ninevites and deliver my message unto them, Jonah balks. And he says, no, God, I'll not go there. Now, I don't think that Jonah's uh, problem with going to Nineveh was wholly based in some kind of prejudice against them as individuals, although uh, I, I think you probably had a good right to be prejudiced against the Assyrians. They were a brutal and bloodthirsty group of people. But I don't think it was based in that. I don't think Jonah was saying, well, boy, I just hate the Assyrians. Uh, instead, I think Jonah understood that the children of Israel were rebellious and that the judgment and wrath of God was soon to be uh, cast down upon them. And he understood that God had a tendency of using nations to judge his people. And I think Jonah knew that it was sort of like a foot race concerning the judgment of God between Israel and Assyria. He knew that God was going to have to judge both of them, but he he thought, well, boy, I don't want God to use the Assyrians to judge Israel. Why isn't God sending me to preach repentance to Israel? They're God's people. They're the ones that He loves. Why is He sending me to these Gentiles? They don't deserve the grace and love of God. And if they repent, then God's just going to use them to judge Israel. By the way, he was right. That's exactly what happened. It's funny what Jonah says down in chapter 3. We'll get there in course, but he says, this was my word when I was in my own country. Jonah wasn't afraid the Assyrians were going to kill him. Jonah was afraid they was going to repent and get right with God. He was fine doing the will of God until it was something he didn't want to do. And isn't that like most of us? Jonah's submission was discriminatory. Not only that, it was defiant. He finally did what God wanted. But even when he did it, he did it with the wrong attitude and the wrong spirit. I'm convinced of this more than I'm convinced that I'm wearing two shoes tonight that when Jonah got to heaven, he didn't see one bit of reward for the greatest revival that ever happened in human history. I'm convinced that he didn't reap one bit of reward, one bit of commendation from God because the whole time this thing's happening, he is despising and begrudging what's taking place. And he did go and preach, but he did it with a wrong spirit. He was defiant, man. He did what, like I've heard kids say, and like you've heard kids say, and like you might still say, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm, Lord, I, I'm preaching on the outside, but I'm quiet on the inside. I'm standing up on, I'm sitting down on the outside, Lord, but I'm a standing up on the inside. He was defiant. Not only was he defiant, but he was delayed in his obedience. His obedience came at last, but it came at the last. Instead of obeying immediately, Uh, He waited to obey God, and he is forever a testimony of this simple fact that delayed obedience is disobedience. So how do you know that, preacher? Because God judged him for it. 
Delayed obedience is disobedience. So I see Jonah's submission. Now let's compare that with Jesus' submission. I, I didn't write a, a bunch down for this. Some of y'all might be praising the Lord for that, but, I, but, but I just wrote down three sort of words that I think describe to me how Jesus was obedient. Let me read a text verse to you in John 8, 29. I think this pretty much sums it up. The Lord Jesus said, He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. The Lord Jesus was not begrudging in His obedience uh, to the Father, but we find that three characteristics, and they're the exact opposite of Jonah. Let me say that Jesus' submission was constant. didn't matter what God asked of Him. Jesus did it. Whereas Jonah's willing to pick and choose and cherry pick how he'll be obedient, Jesus says, Lord, I'll do anything that you want me to do. I do always those things that please you. You say, give me proof of that. Well, in the Garden of Eden, when there are in the, excuse me, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when there was something he did not desire to do, he said, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but thy will. He was constant. Not only that, we find that he was compliant. Jonah was defiant. Jesus was compliant. Jonah said, man, I'll do it. But I ain't going to be happy about it. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Jesus said, I'll gladly, I'll joyfully do what my father calls me to do. And then let me say that Jesus' submission was instant, was instant. He did not delay, but he went instantly. The Bible talks about the Spirit of God driving him into the wilderness and him going instantly without care for provision, without care for preparation. The Spirit of God said, go. And he said, I'll go. He was instant in his obedience. Now, if the Ninevites could look at Jonah, who was a testimony of an unsubmitted spirit, and they could still, by the way, look past that and look through that and see the will and work and hand of God, then surely we're going to be judged if we've looked at the perfect obedience and submission of Jesus and have spurned it and have not considered it. He had a greater spirit of submission. Not only that, he had a greater spirit of sacrifice. Look down in verse number 11, excuse me, of Jonah chapter number 1. Now, you know the story. You've probably heard it since you were a a child in Sunday school. Jonah gets on the boat, and they start out to sea, and the Bible says the Lord uh, stirs up a great uh, storm, a great wind, uh, to destroy uh, that that ship and to drive Jonah out into the midst of the sea. And uh, whenever this happens, these men that Jonah is sailing with, they're not God-fearing men. Uh, They've done nothing wrong. It's not their fault that this is happening. But they're not God-fearing men. They're pagans. And they immediately begin to cry out and pray to their pagan gods. Well, Jonah's asleep down in the bottom of the boat. There's probably something to be said for that too. There's another time when the Lord Jesus sleeps in the bottom of the boat. Uh, but it's not out of apathy. It's out of providence. And it's out of calm resolve in the, in the protective care of the Father. But Jonah's asleep down in the bottom of the boat. So they finally rouse him up. They wake him up said, Man, you crazy? We're getting ready to drown out here. And Jonah walks out and he sees what's going on. He realizes, man, this is happening because of me, my disobedience. Listen to what it says, Jonah chapter number 1, verse 11. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon me. Now that can seem noble at first. But can I just point out two juxtaposing facts? One, Jonah gave his life to save guiltless sailors. I don't think Jonah said, cast me into the sea uh, because he had a death wish or he was afraid of death, either one. I think he asked them to cast him into the sea for one singular reason. He would have been content for that ship to go down with him, except he did not want, because the sailors had done nothing to anger God, he did not want them to have to die for his sake. He says, you throw me out and the storm will stop and you don't have to drown 
for my sake. He says, I know that for my sake is this great tempest upon you. He died for guiltless sailors. Now, that's noble to some degree, except what he's doing is fixing the mess that he created for himself. What about the Lord Jesus and his spirit of sacrifice? Did he die for guiltless people? Did he die for righteous people? Did he die for people uh, that uh, bore no responsibility and bore no guilt uh, for the situation and mess that they were in? Uh, did When he died, was he dying because of the mess he had got himself into? Was he dying because he had done something wrong and angered God and was being judged? No, in fact, the exact opposite of true. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a great witness and testimony, that spirit of sacrifice. And then let me say this, that I believe the Lord Jesus had a greater spirit of sympathy than Jonah had. Uh, Jonah is not a sympathetic figure in the Word of God. He does not cut a sympathetic profile. Turn over to chapter 4 of the book of Jonah. It'll probably only be a page or two. The great revival of Nineveh has happened. They, they've shuttered the liquor stores. Uh, they, they've closed down the brothels. The kings repented. The cattle's repented. Man, God showed up. Uh, listen, there, there's a King James Baptist church on every corner now in Nineveh. Revival has come to Nineveh. Jonah's thrilled. No. Listen to what it says, verse number 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was very angry, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth thee of the evil. I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, Jonah, what's there to be mad about yet? He says, therefore now, O Lord, uh, uh, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. In other words, when God showed mercy to Jonah's enemies, perceived enemies, it burdened and broke Jonah. Yet we find the Lord Jesus was the exact opposite. We find that Jonah wept for their belief. He was, he was grieved because they had repented, because they had got right with God. But how was the Lord Jesus concerning uh, the belief or unbelief of his enemies the Bible teaches us that Jesus, Jonah wept for their belief, but Jesus wept for the unbelief of the generation around him. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says this, When he was come near, near to Jerusalem, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou had known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eye. He was getting ready to go down there and be scourged and be spit upon and be buffeted and be stripped naked and beaten and hung upon a cross and die by those people. And before he walks into the city, he stands up over the hillside and just weeps for their unbelief. Even on the way to the cross. I'm talking about even on the way to the cross. The Bible says there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves for your children. He said, don't cry for me. I'm crying for you. Because I know what this is going to mean. There as he hung upon the cross, one of the seven sayings he uttered was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hey, listen, what greater... I'm so glad we have the Savior we have. What better Savior could we ask for to take to a lost and dying world than the Savior we have? I mean, listen, He's not a cold, distant God sitting on another planet or sitting in another dimension. 
But he robed himself in flesh and suffered and died for men. And whenever we look at the broken and the fractured and, and, and the faithless and they say, God can't understand me, we can say, oh, yes, he can. Because he's been where you're at. He's borne what you bear. When they say, well, God doesn't care about me, we can say, hey, he wept over you. He wept over you. We see that he had a greater spirit of sympathy than Jonah. Jonah wept for their belief. Jesus wept for their unbelief. And then let me say that not only do we see that his was a greater spirit than Jonah, but his was a greater sign than Jonah. Listen to what it says in verse 40. You don't have to turn back there. I'll read it to you because I want you to stay in the book of Jonah. But in verse 40 of, of Matthew chapter number uh, 12, uh, Jesus says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you this, that there is some compare and there is some contrast here. In other words, the the whole purpose for which Jesus is saying this, he's not saying I'm different than Jonas, he's saying I'm like Jonas. And yet we understand that nobody is like Jesus, that he's unique, that he's superior, that he is exclusive in his character and nature. And so it's fascinating, we can say, look at all these similarities between Jonah and Jesus, there are similarities, but he's also superlative. And I would say this, that the reason that the generation of Ninevites that lived in Jonah's day would rise up and condemn Jesus was because Jesus was not just an equal witness to Jonas. He was not just an equal sign to Jonas, but he was a superior one, a greater than Jonas is here. How was he greater in his sign? Well, and i got to hasten through this. I wish I had a lot of time to talk about it, and I don't. But let me just basically say three things. Let me say, number one, that Jesus's was a greater death than Jonah's death. I believe Jonah died. I believe he died. Uh, you say, uh, you know, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of historical records of evidence of people spending a short while having been swallowed by a great whale and, and being spit back up. And I've seen commentators go to great lengths try to document how this is possible without it being miraculous. But I see no reason for it not to just simply be miraculous. I think Jonah died. I don't know how you'd feel after three days, three nights in a whale's belly. I'd probably need an Advil. Amen? I, 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 th- I see no reason to just simply then, then to not say, well, Jonah died. And God raised him from the dead. I think the language that Jonah uses later on, he talks about from the belly of hell, I, I cried unto thee. And, and I think that's good fit testimony. But let me give you another reason I think so. Because he wouldn't have been a very good symbol or, or type of the Lord Jesus. And this connection would not have been logical had Jonah not died. Because the Lord Jesus most assuredly did die for our sins and rose again the third day. But I would say this, I believe that Jesus' death was in fact greater than Jonas' death was. So what do you mean? Well, I, I think we could note the fact that Jonas' death, uh, it was restorative in nature. Jonah had messed up and God was chastening him and God was getting Jonah back where Jonah needed to be. Jonah's death was a product of his disobedience to God. And the some purpose of, of Jonah dying. Now, I want you to listen carefully to me. Some people would say, well, uh, God had Jonah die and then rose him from the grave uh, so that he could save the Ninevites. No, that's not true. God could have sent someone else to the Ninevites. He didn't need Jonah for that. Uh, God had Jonah die and rose from the grave uh, so that he could uh, save Jonah. He was doing this for Jonah. God wasn't doing this because he had run out of pinch hitters. He could have sent anybody in to go and preach to Nineveh. He could have sent an angel from heaven to do it. He did all that he did for Jonah's sake because he loved Jonah. And he was trying to restore Jonah 
to where he needed to be. In fact, I think it would be fair to say that the sum total purpose and product of Jonah's uh, experience was that he was restored. It saved one man. That's not true of the Lord Jesus. Jonas's death was restorative, but Jesus's death was redemptive. It saved many. Hey, Jonah died as a product of the chastening of God. But Jesus died as a product of the wrath of God. Jonah's death may have satisfied to bring him back to a right place with God, but through Jesus' death, many men have been brought to a right condition with God. Mark 10.45 says it this way, Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And Paul says it so beautifully under inspiration of the Holy Ghost in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I'm saying I think the death of Jesus accomplished much more than the death of Jonah did. I think it was a greater death. Not only that, I would say this, and you could write that word. Beside that phrase, a greater death, you could write the word crucifixion. But let me say, number two, I believe that Jesus' was a greater depth that he went to than what Jonah went to. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, as I've said, I believe Jonah died. And and what that experience was like, I don't know. And I don't know anyone that could really tell me. Jonah gives us some insight to it. In fact, the way he describes it, and the first six verses of chapter 2 says this, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Now, somebody will say, well, this is what it was like, preacher. Well, here's the problem with that. A dead man can't pray. Uh, Jonah couldn't pray if he was dead. This must have been either prior to him dying or after him dying. But it would not have been during the interval when he was dead. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and cry, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed, uh, to, um, closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Now, again, I believe Jonah died. But I believe what he's saying here, and if you want my opinion, I believe this is being uh, spoken in his heart and in his head and in his mind. I believe after God resurrected him, but before the uh, fish spit him out. I believe he is, uh, I believe this is the point at which he is uh, repenting and turning back to God. And you could argue with that, I suppose. But the question has to be asked, you know, where was Jonah in those three days and in those three nights? Uh, when he says, out of the belly of hell cried I, we understand that word can, in the Old Testament, it can mean hell, meaning the uh, place where the uh, unsaved go when they die. But sometimes it's also used to refer the abode of any that died in the Old Testament. Uh, so what does he mean when he says, out of the belly of hell? I, I believe he was probably wherever Lazarus was uh, for those four days. I don't know if they had any awareness. I don't believe in soul sleep. I believe a man, uh, when he dies, he's still conscious and he's still aware. But I also recognize these are unusual circumstances. So I do not know what his experience was like. Uh, but I can say this. Say, preacher, where was he? Are you ready? In the belly of a whale. I, I understand there's more to it than that. But I'm saying that Jonah's depth that he went to, he went to the depth of the sea. 
he experienced that type of condescension. But the Lord Jesus, what he experienced, what he went through, that's what I'm getting at, what he went through. What did Jonah go through? Well, he, he died a death, it would seem, by drowning. He experienced that, whatever uh, terror and, and discomfort that may have provided. But that pales in comparison to the death that the Lord Jesus died and the depth that Jesus went to. Uh, Jonah went to the depth of the sea, but Jesus went to the depth of suffering. Matthew chapter 27 describes Calvary for us. And there in the midst of it, it says in verse 45, From the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land under the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jonah, for whatever he could say, he wasn't forsaken by God. He was pursued by God. But Jesus experienced a severing uh, between his relationship and the Father's. The Bible describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2. I won't take the time to read all of it, but it tells us about his suffering. It tells us that he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. I'm saying that what Jesus experienced was far worse and therefore far greater as a witness, as a sign, as a testimony than what Jonah ever experienced. So it was a greater depth. But then let me say, I believe that Jesus experienced a greater deliverance than what Jonah experienced. Uh, Jonah's deliverance, his resurrection is, is summarized in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, The Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. That's really all that's said about it. We know it would appear that he was dead. It would appear that God resurrected him, raised him from the dead at the end of that three days and three nights. And and then he was spit up or vomited up upon dry land and walked into the city of Nineveh and started preaching. Have you ever thought about what it must have looked like? There actually, as we've said, there is historical record of men being swallowed by great fish. And one of the uh, descriptions that's given about a man in the 1800s on a whaling vessel that was swallowed by a whale and they were able to recover his, his body was that because of the time that was spent in the, uh, in, in the stomach juices of that whale, that he was snow, his flesh was bleached and was snow white. That corrosive stomach acid had literally drawn all the color out of his skin and he was snow white, almost like a ghost would be, almost like a piece of paper. He was snow white. Imagine what it must have looked like they're on the shores of Nineveh when boys are out there fishing, cleaning their nets, doing whatever they do, working on boats. And here comes this fellow white as a ghost walking up out of the ocean. Here comes this fellow, uh, a whale, peeks his head out up over the water, spits him out on the dry land. He gets up, shakes it off, and says, which way is Nineveh, fellas? What a witness and testimony that must have been. You see, part of, part of the power and force of Jonah's witness and testimony was that experience. Uh, But I I notice that the Lord Jesus, His testimony, His witness, is even far greater than that. The preacher, why? And I've got to hasten. I ran out of time 40 minutes ago. Amen? Don't look at your clock. It'll just make you mad. You'll leave in a bad spirit. I, I think that the Lord Jesus, His deliverance is greater. And I could write the word resurrection beside that. When I, when I talk about death, I could write the word crucifixion. When I talk about death, I could, I, I could write the word condescension. But here I'm going to write the word resurrection. Resurrection. His resurrection was greater than Jonah's resurrection. Say, so why? Well, because of the miracle of his appearance. It was a miracle that Jonah walked into the city of Nineveh, but it was a far greater miracle when Jesus walked out of the tomb. For Jonah had died 
maybe an unusual death in the sense of the circumstances, but it was typical in the sense that his heart had quit beating, his lungs had quit breathing, his brain had quit functioning. But when Jesus died, he died not only a physical death, but a spiritual death in our place. And when he was raised from the dead, he was raised not by the power of a God that he was running from, but he was raised by the power of the God that he was in fellowship with, yea, and the power of his own self. He was raised. He said, I have power to lay down my life and to take it up again. He said, I have this power from my Father. Jonah didn't raise himself from the dead, but Jesus raised himself from the dead. Not only that, but because of the magnitude of his appearance. Because of of what Jonah did and because of Jonah's appearance, an entire city was saved. But think about how different this world would be had Jesus not risen from the dead. In fact, I'll go ahead and read it to you. I wasn't going to, but in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, it says, If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain. Might as well shut down the church. Your faith is also vain. You might as well throw away your Bible. Get rid of your prayer closet. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. You might as well forget about all the great things God's done in the lives of others because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, where faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. In other words, uh, if Jonah hadn't raised from the dead, God would have sent somebody else to preach to Nineveh and one man's life would have perished. But had Jesus not risen from the grave, hey, all of mankind would have perished in their sins. His was a greater sign. And then finally, and I'm done tonight, let me say that his was a greater sermon than Jonah. I mean, listen, his, and we can read all about it in, in Jonah chapter number three, and, and we can see all of the, it was a short message. Uh, you say, preacher, what's that like? I don't know. Jonah chapter three, verse one says, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time saying, arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Uh, so Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days journey. And Jonah began to enter into the cities, uh, the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Say, preacher, I wish you'd, I wish you'd preach that quick. Well, I wish you'd repent that quick. Amen. If you'd repent that quick, I'd preach that quick. I mean, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was it. Uh, that was his entire message. Can I say this? That I believe that, that the sermon that Jonah preached, that, that Jesus has a greater sermon than Jonah, has a greater truth to carry to a lost and dying world. For instance, I believe that Jesus' message is greater. I, I believe it's a brighter message. Jonah showed up. How's this for a good sermon? No no points, no poems, no introduction. He showed up and said, y'all are about 39 days away from God wiping you off the planet. That's it. And the best you can hope for is to repent and get right with God and live many years and then die. Welcome to church. But listen, the message we get to carry to a lost and dying world is a hopeful one. Not just God's getting ready to judge you and condemn you. That's true. Uh, but it, it's not just, hey, uh, you're getting ready to be condemned. No, it's you're condemned already. And God done showed up and died in your place so that you don't have to live under that condemnation. You don't have to die in your sins. Uh, it's not just, hey, God, God's angry with you. That was the message to Nineveh. God's angry with you. You better get right. We get to show up and say, hey, God loves you. And he died in your place. It's a brighter message. Not only that, it's a better message. It's a better message. You say, how do you know? Well, uh, I would say this, it's more durable. It's more durable. Uh, the message that Jonah gives is a is a uh, earthly message. It's a temporal message. The judgment that was about to fall on Nineveh was a temporal earthly judgment. That was it. And the repentance they committed only uh, only provided and secured for them a stay for a certain period of time. The whole the, the book of Nahum exists 
because God eventually did judge Nineveh because they turned back to their wicked ways. In other words, the message was an earthly message and it was a temporal message, but the message that we get to preach about Jesus Christ, it's a better message. It's a heavenly message. It's an eternal message. It's not just, hey, buy another 10 years. Hey, buy another 15 years. The commandment that God has given is eternal life. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. For the saved, blood-washed, born-again believer, there's no book of Nahum coming 70 years later. There's no second wrath coming later. Uh, we've all, the wrath has been poured out upon the Son. We have a better message than Jonah had. Not only that, say not only is his message better, his mercy is, is greater. The Lord Jesus' mercy is greater. Jonah 3, 5 says, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. Now, that sounds impressive, and it is impressive. But can I remind you, says the people of Nineveh, it didn't even spread throughout the empire, let alone across the world. I notice here the local scope of mercy in Jonah's sermon. I mean, it bought a stay of execution. It bought a season of mercy and of patience and of long-sufferingness with God. But it was, that message was only given to the city of Nineveh. And only in the city of Nineveh was that message enjoyed. It did not scoop up the rest of the lost Gentile world. But the, the message of the Lord Jesus, His mercy does. I see the local scope of mercy in Jonah's sermon, but I see the universal scope of mercy in Jesus' sermon. Uh, the Bible doesn't say, for God so loved the Ninevites that He gave His only begotten Son, any more than it says, for God so loved the Americans, or for God so loved the Tennesseans. Now, I do believe God loves people from Tennessee, maybe a little better than He loves most. But it doesn't say, for God so loved, it says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten that, That's me, that's you. It's everybody we love and everybody we hate. For God so loved the world. First Timothy 4.10 says Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Uh, you say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, it doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved, but it means that everybody that wants to be saved can be saved, and everybody that's going to be saved is going to be saved the same way. They're going to be saved through Jesus. He's the Savior of all men. I see that His mercy is greater. And then, can you believe I'm done? I've only been preaching 20 minutes. His ministry is greater. The Bible says in Jonah 3, verse 6, For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hand. In Nineveh, it was from the king to the cattle throughout the land of Nineveh that repented. But you know, a, a greater, a greater ministry is taking place today. It's not just from the king to the cattle. Now it's from the Jew to the Gentile. It's from the east to the west. It's from the rich to the poor. It's across all spectrums that God is saving people and changing their lives and radically transforming them. I think there's no greater witness and testimony to the power of God than the work that God is doing today. Even to, I'm not just talking about 200. I'm talking about even today in the church. Hey, listen, what a great ministry. Uh, this is the re I, And I love this. I'll close with this in Revelation 7. You know how things wind up? Listen to what John saw in Revelation 7, verse 9. He said, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, 
If you had gone to Nineveh, it would have been, uh, and the figure is given, uh, you know, uh, a couple hundred thousand people or so. But, but John says, I saw a multitude which no man could number. And it wasn't just of the Assyrians. It wasn't just of the Jews. But it was of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues that stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Now, preacher, what are you saying all this for? What is this getting at? How do we respond to this? Well, let's remind you of a couple things. One, if you're here lost tonight, I know a Sunday night, Baptist church, business meeting night, I know uh, it, it probably took a little salvation to get you here tonight. Amen? But I understand most people in this room are probably saved. But if you're not, let me say that you'll get no greater testimony, no greater witness than that of the risen Lord and Savior. And then for those of us that are saved, let me say that we have that we are equipped with the superior, supreme, impeccable gospel, with a risen Savior, a risen Lord, and there's a world that needs to hear about Him. There's nothing greater. There's nothing greater. Hey, listen, there, there'll, there'll be no piece of technology. There'll be no financial uh, or investment secret. Uh, there, there'll, be no, uh, there'll, there'll be no life hack. There'll be nothing in your life that is exciting, as exciting to share with others as the truth of the risen Savior. The greatest thing we've got to talk about Hey, there'll never be anything that President Trump does or doesn't do that'll be greater to talk about than what the Lord Jesus did. There'll never be anything. There'll never be anything more exciting. And I don't just say this because I've give up on Tennessee football, but they'll they'll never. I have, but that's not why I say this. But there'll be never be anything as exciting to talk about with Tennessee football as the excitement that there is in talking about the risen Lord. He's the greatest witness. He's the greatest sign. He's the greatest testimony. He's greater. A whole generation was saved when Jonah was spit up on that shore. Imagine what God can do if we would take the message of a Savior that walked out of a tomb and did so that He might save men and redeem them unto Himself. Imagine what God could do in our lives and through our generation if we would take that message. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to the piano. I don't know what God may have done in your heart. I just want you to be obedient to Him tonight. If he's spoken to your heart in any way, please respond obediently to him these next few moments. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for the truth of your word. Pray that your people would be obedient unto you. In as much as you've spoken to their hearts, as you've stirred them, as you've challenged and charged them under a greater walk with thee, a closer walk with thee, I, I pray that you would just help them to be obedient to your ministering, to your working. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Bless the remainder of our time together. We ask it in Christ's name.